0: So to pick up a theme that's uh, occurred at various points along our time together I think I might have mentioned and possibly misdescribed the date for what's known as perihelion I think Catherine told me later I said the 4th of July which is (laughs) approximately as wrong as you can be Because it's the 4th of January, and the 4th of July, it's actually when this planet is the farthest away that it can get from the sun. (laughs) But today, a little earlier today, this planet was as close as it currently gets to the sun. And the difference is something of about 3 million miles. So we've been closer to that big, red, hot, glowing ball of exploding, burning gas. In the last twenty-four hours, then we're going to be for a while. And in one sense, it's kind of irrelevant. In one sense, it's kind of significant. There's something about that fact that's something, and that another way, there's something about it that's really nothing. And I'm not quite sure if this is going to quite describe the theme of the talk, but something and nothing is perhaps one way we might hold it. Let's see. To be engaged in what we are is to engage in something fundamental to what we are. This human endeavour of seeking happiness, of seeking peace, of seeking freedom. So deeply we long for this, so much time and energy we put in to this and yet so much of this endeavor it seems does not bear the fruit we seek or wish for. There's so much suffering, so much pain, so much confusion in this world at times in our lives and at times in our hearts. And the Buddha's teaching recognise as the basic underlying factor in this, what he called Avidya. And this word was translated uh, and I would say somewhat unfortunately by rather conservative Victorian English people initially into English as ignorance. Now they did some wonderful work. Actually I'm immensely grateful to those translations. They were the first place I got to read the Buddha's teachings directly they have been refined in subsequent years by further translators but the translation of ignorance isn't actually that helpful because it sounds kind of pejorative ignorant, stupid foolish we might have been described or called such things before a much more useful word is blindness a Vidya. I think. I'm not an etymologist or a linguist or anyone who should have an opinion on this, but I do anyway. I think someone once told me that vid in avidya is the same as vid, vision, video, seeing. Avidya. Not seeing. Blindness. And this blindness is the basic factor in the arising of suffering. It's not seeing the way things are. I had a very touching and powerful experience when I was um, first travelling and I travelled after I left my um, work that I think I mentioned a few nights ago, Um, my brief career of about 18 months (laughs) Um, and I travelled around New Zealand before I left and at one point I was cycling and I'd been cycling for weeks and perhaps months at that point. And one of the things that happens when two people who cycle touring pass each other is they look at each other with that look of someone else who must be as crazy as me to do this really physically challenging, difficult, arduous and exhilarating thing called carrying all your stuff with you and going around on a bicycle in all conditions which you cannot avoid on a bicycle. But rather than just that brief moment of looking and stopping uh, and just saying hi, that inevitably happens between two cycle tourists passing each other, We just somehow stopped. I don't know why we stopped. We stopped. We said hello. We were going in opposite directions. This was going to slow both of us down. But anyway, we stopped. We said hello. It turned out that as we spoke a little bit, we had something in common. In fact, her sister had been in my class at school. And we started talking. We kept talking. and At some point, she looked at me and said, you know, don't change from where you're orienting. I don't remember the exact words now. And basically she started to tell me something about myself that I knew but hadn't articulated. And what she said was, actually, not everyone sees. What's happening? am not saying she was telling me I was seeing everything that was happening, but I couldn't quite understand how in the world what happened seemed to happen despite the fact that so much suffering was caused by so many intentional actions. I couldn't comprehend that. It was a real struggle for me. And she said actually not everyone sees. She used the word awareness. I must have known the word, but I never heard it used to say something's happening there that isn't happening to the same degree everywhere. And I remember, we, we actually it was quite an amazing meeting. Uh she taught me some things that were really important to me. And um she wanted to camp out was a little bit afraid because of sleeping out in the middle of nowhere under an open starry sky in the um, wilderness of southern New Zealand. Uh, she wasn't up for doing that by herself And uh, but the fact that I was there meant she was happy to and so uh, we, we offered each other something and for me I went away with this word awareness ringing ringing in my, not just my mind but my whole being to see... What is to be seen that we don't all see as much, but we can see more than we see so far, and we need to listen or to respect and live accordant in accordance with what we see. That's what she said, and it was like she didn't say it quite like that. I've obviously, this was this was half a lifetime ago, but she said something like, "said Don't change," and then she looked at me with a certain sadness, and she could see oh, it's already happening, you you are changing from that, aren't you're moving away from that, aren't you? And and I, I realized that she was right. It's not that I wanted to, but I just didn't have any other compass to orient to. And somehow she gave me that. Her name was Sarah Chester. Bless her. So we're here in the business of seeing what's real, what's true, we could say. And one of the things that we'll notice, that we we'll see very clearly, very strongly, and we've touched on it as both a, um, as Akinshino spoke last night, restlessness is one of the, the hindrances, the Navaranas, the challenges. I translate the word personally for myself, no etymological skill here, but just a personal felt sense of challenges is the word that helps me feel into the appropriate response to the hindrances or these qualities, but restlessness if we look at that surface expression of restlessness what we see is that it's actually a reflection of something that runs very deep into that core and the psyche of our being and the very cells of our organism. And it's something that the Buddha spoke of as one of the last things to go before we fully release, before the heart and mind are fully liberated. So there's this restlessness that has a sense of somehow something missing. Something incomplete, something lost, something needing to be somehow found or changed or fixed. And it runs very deep in us. Quite some years ago, Catherine and I were moving between different places, not having a place of our own. And we were staying in a friend's home um, for, I think it was a month or so. And while we were there, and I remember this very clearly, I was washing up the dishes after we'd eaten the meal. And then I was um, needing to call a friend, and I was on the phone, and I was just talking to my friend. And then just, as I, we'd only, we'd been married just a few years then, and I was just sometimes in the habit of just reaching over and touching my wedding ring and just feeling that sort of soft, sort of shiny spot underneath it where it's kind of rubbed away the skin a bit. And as I was on the phone, I reached over and I realised, Oh, it's not on my finger. And I got a little concerned, but I was, so I finished off the conversation and I said, Catherine, don't tip out the dishwater. Actually, I did that before I finished. I covered the mouthpiece. I said, don't tip out the dishwater. And finished the conversation went over and checked the dishwater. It wasn't in there. I started to get worried. I said, can you help me look for this thing? We started looking for my ring. And we were looking, we looked all over the house we looked all over the house and all the time I was holding and touching this soft shiny spot where I was missing from feeling bereft and distressed I mean it was a really thin piece of gold material it wasn't the money involved in it Not that we, I mean that would have been a loss but it was the, this, what this represented for me and then at some point after we looked pretty much everywhere Catherine looked at me and she said as I was feeling that spot she said it's the other hand <laughs> and I was going It's missing. It's not there. And it was never missing. It was there. This is a true story. And you know what's interesting is the fact I was feeling the sense of its loss so deeply and keenly. And I was looking so hard for it while all the time feeling the place where it was missing from with my hand that I couldn't actually see what was right there in front of me. It was never gone. It was never lost. But it was not seen or felt for that little while of distress. So we are really here to look and see what's really happening. To look more deeply into this moment into this experience, because the tenets we have, the compulsion, and the, the way in which blindness expressions express itself, expresses itself as fundamentally delusional behavior is looking somewhere else for that which we're most interested in. That's the fundamental way it expresses itself in delusional behavior, looking for my wedding ring when I'm wearing it. Looking somewhere else for what it is that we're really interested in. Looking outside of what is here. So We come into this practice, we engage in this form, we see these teachings and shapes that we're invited to engage with and the Buddha Dharma, this remarkable transmission, such a blessing it seems to me, certainly a blessing in my life and I see in many others too. This teaching came to us, it seems to me, um, in a framework, in a packaging, very much flavoured by what was appropriate for the place in which it had developed and been initially articulated and then supported, sustained, practiced, and uh, in a way enculturated in Asia. Many of our early teachers, and I have so much appreciation and respect for the courage and the commitment and the dedication and practice that was expressed by both um, the Asian teachers who offered the Dharma to Westerners who they must have thought were pretty weird, And the teachers who also brought from Asia, both Western and Asian, teachings into the West as a practitioner who myself, though I did my first retreats in Asia, have done most of my practice not in Asia, done most of my practice here in the West. But some of the things they didn't understand, we've come to understand a little bit later. We've understood that Western bodies actually, if they sit cross-legged for an hour or 45 minutes, sometimes that's a bit longer than is okay for them. And the sensations aren't just things to notice, but things to listen to that say, hmm, time to change your posture. We have to learn that. Some of us had to pay a cost in the learning of that. Some of our teachers, some of my teachers, who can't sit cross-legged anymore, because they didn't move and didn't move until it's just sensations. Which it is, but sometimes sensations have information that we need to listen to. And uh, there's an attitude that can kind of suggest that we kind of almost disregard these Precious human bodies. We've talked a little bit about that, but I remember being struck reading a text, and it's a, a famous, well known text, a little controversial in a certain way. I certainly don't endorse significant chunks of what it seems to suggest, but at the time I first read it, I was quite new in practice, and uh, it's a remarkable volume of teaching. But one of the things, the Visuddhimagga, the um, path of purification, some of you will know this text, it's a substantial body of work. Um, and there was this section in it where it suggested that as you develop really deep concentration, and you can develop really deep concentration, really deep and concentration, I agree with Akinshnaw, actually, I try not to use that word, but that was the translation word in this text. In the English, it was using that word. You can develop remarkably profound, powerful samadhi, unification, collection, or collectedness and and gatheredness of heart and mind such that some of the ordinary experiences around us stop to really touch us in, a, in the ordinary way. I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's just what happens sometimes in the deepening of that particular faculty of mind that the Buddha described as having no bottom, something that could be plumbed deeper and deeper and deeper, and you'd never get to the bottom of the capacity of the mind to unify, and in that come to stillness and deepest levels of stillness. But anyway, going back to the text, in the text it said, um, the Visuddhimagga that... As a, as a monk, and this would equally be as a nun, one was free to do what one wished with one's practice, but the robes one wore were not one's own. So it said, so if you go into deep meditation, deep samadhi, you must, before you do so, make an intention that if the building begins to burn, you'll come out of samadhi, you'll come out of that meditation and save the robes, because the robes are not yours. If you wish to be incinerated in your deep meditation, that's up to you, is what it was suggesting. But you may not burn these robes, they're not yours. And I remember being struck, first of all, by the thought that one could have that kind of samadhi. Whoa! That you didn't feel the building burning down around you. And then that you might have a responsibility to take care of your clothes. There's a message we might have heard that came through a little less su- little more subtly than that one about our relationship to body that we need to recognize as not necessarily most useful and there's a similar message that came through in many of the orientations at least in the early years about in this tradition about effort and you've probably picked up that there's a little encouragement from us here teaching not to try too hard in fact not probably to push ourselves in a way that gets out of balance. and um, I had a really useful insight into this in, in you know, early years in practicing in Asia and practicing with an Indian teacher amongst Indian people. Um, that I saw that the teacher might be saying, you must try really hard, you must do it all the time, you must not take a moment to do anything other than just meditate and push yourself. And of course the students would wander around, they'd do a bit of meditation, they'd chat to each other in the silence, they'd go and have a cup of tea. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, that's why they're telling us to try that hard. Because <laughs> these people have no... And I'm not, nega- I'm not criticizing them. Um, it's just that was their orientation, their cultural thing was, oh, we're pretty relaxed about this stuff. <laughs> you know? You tell that to Westerners, and for the most part, they're already trying too hard before you open your mouth. <laughs> And then, boom, you tell them to try hard, they'll crank the effort and the forcing and the insensitivity levels up to catastrophic degrees. Not so useful. And what we also might have encountered, as I did, in certain traditions, the monks would... It wasn't quite like this, but they would give the teachings like this with a fan in front of their face so you couldn't see them. Okay, he was trying to support the impersonal nature of the teachings, that this isn't about a human personality giving you their subjective take. It's actually about something universal, impersonal. There might be something useful in that message, but it's really easy for us to take that kind of Flavor of teaching and take it on as somehow a negation of our humanity. And that's reinforced by the idea that we don't listen to the sensitivity of our bodies. We override it by willpower and effort. I imagine people may say they've gained some fruit in their practice through such things and maybe I have too in certain ways but some of what I learned about it was actually Only a certain and limited amount of that is any value, and it needs to be balanced by some of its opposite, effort with gentleness. And that kind of self-effacement with also an honouring of one's particularity, peculiarity, idiosyncrasy, and humanity. One of the other things that's different for us is that we don't necessarily have such a sort of deep and um, unquestioned sense of connection in our communities, in our families, in our tribal or village or sort of groups. We're much more individualistic, and so there's a lot of pain arises for many Westerners in practice, and this is not just people of Western ethnic origin, but I think anyone living in a Western culture, which actually more and more Asians are starting to live in Westernized cultures, which are more technologically Um, sort of sophisticated but uh, often relationally deprived. That there's something that's really important for us about the way we support a sense of relationship with the humanness. At the same time as we're interested and committed to, profoundly interested in understanding what it is that is revealed through that humanness, but is not limited or bound by it. And so I want to share with you something that I've not endeavoured to teach in the context of a retreat before. I was very struck quite some years ago. It was 1997 in The Inquiring Mind by an article by Norman Fisher, who's a Zen teacher from the um, Cali- uh, San Francisco Zen Centre community uh, based in uh, Green Gulch these days. And he, he described a, um, a version of of the story of the Buddha's great renunciation that was from an early contemporary tradition, the uh, Sarvastivadan tradition, that retold the story in a way that was remarkable to me. And so, in the traditional version of which probably most of you are quite familiar, the story is of Siddhartha Gautama, the prince in the palace with all the wonderful privileges and the beautiful wife and the very protected life encountering the um, the realities of of aging of decay of death and the possibility of spiritual practice to seek freedom and peace through encountering beings embodying those phases of life or that aspiration of the of the um, the spiritual seeker and he decided that he must abandon his his life in the palace and his beautiful wife and the story kind of tells that he made this you know this great thing I'll leave it all behind and go out into the world to seek freedom and uh you know one of the aspects of the story that I remember hearing and being struck by from I haven't, I'm not sure if I read this piece myself, so I'm not sure if it's exactly so. In the traditional, at least Theravadan canon um, story, that there's something of the the way in which he describes as he went to leave, he looked at his wife and she was so beautiful, he just couldn't actually really quite let himself look at her, knowing that her beauty would overwhelm her, his love for her would overwhelm him, and he wouldn't be able to go and do this this follow his, 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 his aspiration, his commitment to the quest. And one gets the sense right from there, that sense that somehow that, that beauty and also that femininity is somehow the thing he has to avoid because it's going to make it really hard for him to do what he has to do. It's suddenly It's right from the beginning of his path. And you see again later in the story, in the teaching, that somehow the whole realm of sexuality, sensuality, is seen in a very threatening way, in the way that tradition comes through. Really, unfortunately, I would say, Something we need to, of course, handle with skill and sensitivity. But uh, there's that story of how it happened. And then, of course, the story goes on to be, in the Theravadan canon, the story of the Buddha. He goes out there. His wife has a child while he's away. But he goes out there and does all his austerities and his six and a half or whatever, almost seven years of practice. And then he sits under the Bodhi tree. And we know what happens there, I guess, somewhat. Um, I won't detail that story. This is a different story, and it's described this way. Coming from the... Uh, actually, I won't even try to pronounce that 16-syllable um, Pali or Sanskrit word. Um, the Mula Vinaya. Oh, okay, I did try to. There we are. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll, I'll post something so you can check this out a little bit later if you wish. But it describes it this way. In the middle of the night, Siddhartha prepares to leave the palace. But as he passes his wife, Yasodhara's room, and sees her sleeping figure, he is overcome by her beauty and his love for her. He can't leave. He goes to her without telling her of his resolve, and they make love. Conceiving their only child, Yasodhara senses Siddhartha's impending distance. Lord, she says, Lord, wherever you go, take me with you, she pleads. So be it, he replies, wherever I go, I will take you. By morning he is gone. And from that night on, Gautama's spiritual quest is mirrored by the course of Yasodhara's pregnancy. Both go on for six years, culminate during the same fateful night. Both Gautama and Yasodhara, in their very differing circumstance, practice austerities, eating only one sesame seed, one grain of rice, and one pulse pod a day. And for both, the period of asceticism is grim and unsuccessful. Gautama nearly dies, and Yasodhara almost loses the child. When Gautama accepts solid food again, Yasodhara does too, and the child is saved. Gautama sits under the bow tree full of strength and determination. Yasodhara enters labour. Gautama is then tempted by Mara. While Yasodhara And the palace receives a messenger from Mara who tells her that her husband has died. And she, overcome with grief, again almost loses the child. But at the moment when the former prince is about to enter enlightenment, Yasodhara hears the truth, recovers, and gives birth to their son Rahula at the eclipse of the moon in the same moment as the Buddha awakens. It's a different story. It comes from this uh, tradition, the Savastivadin. It was another major early school, parallel to the Theravadan tradition that has come to us. It didn't survive as a practice school, but the texts survive and have been translated. And, uh, and it's interesting because in the Theravadan, this, I'm just taking this from Norman Fisher's commentary on this text. Um, he says, you know, in the Theravadan version of the story, the word Rahula is etymologized as feta. Fetter, i.e., that thing which entangles you or binds you and limits you. And the fetters, traditionally, there are 10 of them, you have to actually release or become free of. Restlessness is one of the ones to go in the last stages. Um, fetter, so like having a child, engaging in family life, it's a fetter. It's like it's a polar opposite to awakening. This is more than hindrances, this is fetters. These are the core, key, most difficult things we have to deal with in the liberation of the human heart. Whereas in the Sarvastivadan version, it's said to derive, etymologically, from the word meaning moon god. This gives a slightly different feeling to being Rahula, I expect, because the dual event of the Buddha's enlightenment and Rahula's birth takes place on the night of the eclipse of the moon. And he goes on to say, the story is presented as a single narrative in two halves within the text. The implication is that the enlightenment of the Buddha isn't something that happens to him or is affected by him alone. Nothing in the way the story is told in the original sutta, this version of sutta, hap- privileges Siddhartha over Yasodhara. It is quite clear that it is the whole situation, both the outer birth and the inner turning, that describes the fullness of the path. Leaving home and staying home. Renouncing the world and accepting the world are seen here as parts of a seamless whole. I'm just pausing because that might be quite a bit to digest. I'm not having to think it because I'm just reading it, so I'm just uh, taking a moment. We can't have it all, he goes on to say, our path is particular and as such involves renunciation. I was really struck when I read this. In the story, the Buddha is a renunciate, but so too is Yasodhara. The Buddha gives up the home life, but Yasodhara gives up the homeless life. She doesn't get to go with her Lord and practice in the forest as he did. That's my bit. Together, through the loss of each other and devotion to the individuality of their own lives, they create the whole of enlightenment. The wholeness, I would say honouring the fullness of life in the world and that which is not bound or limited in the way that worldly things are bound and limited but at the same time is not separate from that, apart from that, other than that. Hmm. Interesting. Seems to me broadens out the scope of what we're engaged in considerably. And so I'd like to do something that I've never really done before. There's another something I've never really done at a different level, which is just share a few things about me with you. Because uh, that's not something we do here, really. Unless there's a good point in teaching terms. For bringing out some bit of me and telling you this bit about the classic, uh, when I was an unenlightened bodhisattva, I was kind of silly sort of story. The Buddha has a lot of stories like that, we tend to bring them out too. You know, when I was still trying to get awake, or as I am still trying to get awake, I do these silly things. Now, this isn't that so much, really. I want to say I'm turning 50 in about exactly seven days, in fact, one week from now, I'll be 50. I did my first retreat in January 1990, 25 years ago, and I've spent 25 years in the Dharma since then, for which I'm very, very grateful. Had some remarkable teachers and incredible friends in this journey. For 20 years, I've been teaching in this form, and or well, more than 20 years now, but 20 years at IMS. Came here and... Uh, 1995. I've taught quite a few retreats here over the years. But actually, Joseph Goldstein, who came here 40 years ago, has taught so many more. So it's not anything about me being, hey, wow, it's like, but what a privilege to be part of what's happened here. I feel a privilege. I was talking with Joseph just before um, New Year's. He went into retreat for a couple of months, as he regularly does. And we were just reflecting on his 40 years, my 25. Just how fortunate I feel to have known this man, to still know him. Was part of what I wanted to express. He turned 70 last year, teaching 40 years of those. And uh, at this uh, just four just gone, he taught for the 40th time, over 40 years, a three-month retreat at Guy House. Some of you were there. Now short retreats and long retreats are all good. I'm not making a hierarchy out of this. But, you know, he's taught 43-month retreats. That's 10 years sitting in here. 10 years sitting in here with a group of people. Just on that retreat. He's done a lot more retreats than that. And I just think, oh, wow. What a blessing that IMS is here, that Joseph is here, and many other good beings too. There's something about honouring that. Our good fortune, our blessing. This New Year's retreat, it's been going on for Quite a long time the microphone's gone a little closer is that better? Shall I repeat that first bit? No, okay, I wasn't really going to repeat it. It would take me ages but <laughs> okay this retreat it's uh I think for many years Joseph uh, sorry Jack cornfield taught it, another one of the elders of our community when. First came to live here twenty years ago um we got to be here when it happened. It was amazing at midnight. Jack turned on a movie projector and showed slides and told stories and entertained people until the small hours of the night and spent the most of the rest of the retreat i understand sort of um dealing with the you know the ripples of this rather wonderful celebration so uh um over the years it got a little quieter i believe and uh about ten or eleven years ago when uh he decided to let it go. His co-teacher over those 20-something years, Rodney, asked if I would teach for them. And we taught it together and with some other good and dear friends over a number of years. And then, at, I think five years ago, yeah, five years ago, he said, I'm done with this. I want New Year's at home. So he left it in my lap. and uh, And it's kind of interesting how a retreat becomes a something. It's nothing, really. Just a whole bunch of people turn up in a place and then they go home. But something becomes a something. It's nothing, but it's something. It's not that it didn't happen, or it's irrelevant. It doesn't have any fixedness to it, but you can see it grows and it moves. And when when we did it with Rodney, we just we chanted the precepts and the refuges at night n- at nine o'clock and went had, had some sort of yummy thing and went to bed. We didn't do things with bits of string and balls of fire and all of that. So you can see it's kind of the pendulum has swung just a little. There's something that's alive that we've become part of by being here. and Some of you have been here several times, and quite a number of you were here last year. And we see that um, there's a sort of a way in which there isn't anything here that we can call a retreat. Because it's just a bunch of people turned up and they do something for a while, and in a few days they'll go home and it'll be gone. In the same way, there's nothing here I can quite make into a solid me, but that doesn't mean there isn't something here. We're part of this, that something and nothing, this retreat. You're part of now a trajectory and a lineage that we call the New Year's Retreat at IMS. And you we were here the year that Akinchino and Catherine and Yanai taught that retreat. And we don't know if there'll be another retreat here. I'd like to think there might be, and I would, but it's not guaranteed that there'll be another retreat that Yanai and Catherine and Akinshino would teach at New Year's at IMS. It's special. <laughs> In a sort of way, and maybe it isn't. It's just also, hey... There'll be some other wonderful teachers teaching here, if it's not us, I'm sure. And certainly, at some point, definitely, it will be someone else because we just won't be here. There's something here that's nothing. That doesn't mean it's not also of significance. This year, I was uh, with the staff a couple of days ago in the front office, and they were just commenting on how quiet. The retreat is how steady it seems to be flowing along. How there aren't a lot of notes about practical troubles and problems coming in. And that's not always the case, let me assure you. Sometimes the staff are dealing with a regular flow of things that need to be fixed. We've had a little dance with the heating. A few notes about it's a bit cold. A few notes about now it's a bit hot. A few notes about (laughs) (laughs) how we do this. And all those notes, I want to say it's really welcome. It's important that you let us know when things are getting a bit beyond what's doable for you doesn't mean we can always accommodate them, but you letting us know is part of us being able to find what might be useful in the balance. Yeah? So it's good that those people who found it just a bit too cold as they politely let us know it's too cold. And those people who said, hmm, it's a bit too hot now, let us know that too. Yeah? So that's useful. But just as we were having this conversation about the fact that there have really been very few notes coming in, Elizabeth said yes, who was... Um, Here at the time last year, when uh, two or three days before the end of the retreat, we were commenting on how it had been rather quiet, not a lot (laughs) going on, and a yogi walked in um, and said, Oh gosh, something's missing from my room. You might know this story. And as we started to explore what had happened, we discovered that a lot of things were missing from a lot of rooms, and a rather scary thing was happening, that people were coming into the rooms. You know now, you've probably heard this, why there are locks on the doors. They weren't people from here. They were from the local town, we think, quite for sure, in fact. And we had to respond to that. And anyone who was here for that, that was quite a something. It started off from a quiet retreat, nothing happening. So, of course, you know, the staff in the office, the front office women were saying, um, gosh, so this is kind of quiet. Hmm, that's a little familiar. It was kind of quiet until it wasn't quiet, and then it was really not quiet. Yeah, then there was a lot going on. And, you know, we had to meet what happened there, that kind of that violation of the space, that invasion of the sacred space with an incredible amount of courage and compassion and strength that actually emerged from this group of people or the group of people that were here then, about a third of whom are back here today. No? There's just quite a few actually and the staff also, quite a few of you who are here. And there's something that comes out of that that we feel that gives it some meaning, because there was a learning that happened, a growing that happened, that for me means that retreat as 2014, the New Year's retreat, but also this whole trajectory of the New Year's retreat that I'm teaching over these years now, 10, 11 years of this retreat, has a particularness to me that's significant. It's a place in which we learnt something together. We were moved and touched, and the kindness and the, the wish to care, not just for the people who lost things, which... If you don't know the story, quite a lot of money was taken from people, some of whom didn't have that money to spare. And other people were moved to give into a pot that filled up and overflowed to return everything that was taken and produce an excess which was donated to support local drug charities and offenders and people working in the community with those vulnerable to ending up on drugs or in prison because it turns out there's a heroin problem in Barry, sleepy old Barry. Wow, we didn't know that. So this kind of brings me to a a piece of the personal story, because for me it was very striking, and I've shared with one or two people at the time, but not collectively here. In handling that, I was very aware that we were dealing with uh, theft, simple breach of the second precept. We know why we keep that one, because actually when it doesn't get kept, it's really painful for us, taking things that weren't offered. That's what happened. Things were taken that weren't offered. But for me, that's the one that's probably the hardest. My mind goes there more than any of the others to want to take something that isn't mine. It's the one that I struggle with the most in a certain way. Not so much at an external level these days. When I was a kid, I used to steal things from shops, I used to steal stationery. Even when I was at university, God bless me, I still nicked pens and sometimes paper. I was a law student. I didn't feel good about it, but it was compulsive. (laughs) When I see something on the street, it's hard for me to stop and examine and see if it could be useful to me. This almost killed me once. I was on a motorbike in the northern New Zealand city of Auckland. It was raining. I was going downhill. I was on a motorbike. I saw a pair of spring-loaded pliers on the side of the road and I grabbed the brake going downhill in the rain on a motorcycle. I grabbed the brake with the urgency of, I want those. Of course, I lost control of the bike and uh, quite a lot of skin as well in the outcome, but not any serious injury. And the bike, which was my brother's, was not too expensively damaged, which I was glad about. Though a little worried to see, that's what I was more worried about than anything else, was how much this was going to cost me. And I got these pliers, they were cute, rubber-handled, spring-loaded pliers. But I had absolutely no use for them. I ended up giving them to a friend of mine who was studying electrical engineering. He was quite pleased. But the urge to to get those things just keeps playing out in my system. This is and I'm going to name this because I only realized it today. This is the first time I've come to IMS and I lived here for a couple of years almost. I've taught here probably come and taught probably 30 retreats here over the years since then. This is the first time I haven't been down to the closet under the um what's now Shanti house to look at the clothes and the shoes and the things that are there that you can have if you need some. It's the first time I haven't done that. Amazing, huh? Amazing. Actually, when I thought about it, it was actually, I bought the watch, the socks and the underwear. Everything else I got out of either a closet like that or from a second-hand sort of charity shop that I'm wearing right now. Which actually isn't that many things, is it? (laughs) Anyway, I've taken some of the other things off I was wearing that I got because it's kind of warm. But actually, the polo neck I was wearing and the jacket I was wearing when I had that thought, as well as these trousers and shirt came out of closets like that or places where you buy clothing for 2 or 3 pounds and sometimes you can get nice shirts there <laughs> it struck me when i was travelling that uh, there was something playing out in me i hadn't yet understood and so part of my story and I, how i come to understand this is actually this is something i learnt in my early childhood my father was a, uh, a Jewish infant, born in Eastern Europe. And in fact, Chernovitz, in what was then Romania, is now Moldova, in Eastern Europe. And the time just before the war broke out in Eastern Europe and Western Europe too. And uh, with his parents, was uh, aged two, sent to a camp in the Ukraine, under the uh, fascist regime in Romania at the time, it was an alliance with the, um, with Hitler and the Third Reich. My grandmother escaped with my dad, aged two, from the camp. And they lived wild in the Ukraine for the remainder of the war. When I first got to know my grandmother as an adult, which I hardly knew her as a child because we lived on the other side of the world, she started to tell us a little bit about what it was like. She said of my father... when they were living, she said, I had not what, in her sort of halting English, I had not what to give him, she would say. He had not what to eat. (sighs) My family survived. My my father's father, grandfather, also escaped from that prison camp. The Romanian guards weren't as good as the others, it seems. (laughs) He also escaped from that. He somehow miraculously found his wife and son, aged two or three, living in the wild, and they survived the war that time together. But they survived by stealing food. That's the only way they had what to eat. So when this happened here, I realized immediately that I was in a lineage that was connected with these people who had come in here to take things because they didn't have enough. I didn't actually feel like I could talk about that in this field, in this space, quite fully yet then, but I just about can now and hold what that is for me. So there's something about really needing to honour the circumstances we find ourselves in, the limits we have to work with. To understand why it is that whenever I would come into a new place, and I still find myself doing this sometimes today, but not so much, I would start to look for where could I sleep if I had to sleep out in this town. Where would be somewhere sheltered and safe? Like that bush or that alleyway or that kind of doorway and you know, and I know that they lock churches now. They didn't used to. Churches used to be a refuge in that way. And I know that we actually lock IMS now too. But actually the main building stays open, so that's all right. If I had to doss down somewhere around here, I'd probably come and sleep in the foyer. <laughs> so it's interesting to see what happens in us, in this. To see... What it is to awaken in this condition to see that that playing out in me in the taking sometimes what was not given that looking for what could help was playing out patterns that actually reflected not just my father's story but my mother's likewise, and I won't go into that one, but she too, her parents, her and her parents lost all that they had, and uh my family managed to replicate that with all that we had. So the lack of support of resources generates fear, generates the looking for what is it that I need that will support me. And yet, of course, we need to take care of that. We need to look for that. And I regard myself as fortunate and blessed to be supported by so many people, to receive the support for my life through kindness and generosity as I do, as some of you will be quite aware But there's a dimensionality that runs deeper in terms of what we're really looking for that is equally and often seen fundamentally or primarily as what this journey of awakening is about. But it encompasses both our worldly unfoldment and the understanding, the liberating, the freeing of those patterns of history that we've come to be the recipient of, that we need to take responsibility for, the transformation of so as not to simply pass them on to others in the way they were passed to us by others who couldn't handle them. And so we're asked to look at what's going on here. And I kind of suspected I was going to end up saying way more than I was going to fit into the space. So, Hmm. I'd like to talk, as well as having talked very personally, about something that isn't at all about me. Although it's, of course a very deep interest to me it's at the heart of what i'd love to be able to share with you and it's this exploration of something and nothing what is it that we're here to discover what is it that our hearts long for there's a way in which we see that our sensory equipment is tuned in to picking up things that are moving that are active that are changing that are engaging But there's also a way in which we start to notice the very fact of that receptivity and sensitivity as something not separate from but somehow inexplicably more than what we're noticing, seeing or hearing or feeling or tasting or touching. And it's like we have to start to get this sense of both the sound and the silence woven together, both the form and the space somehow expressing themselves together, both the manifest and the potential, or the potency, somehow revealing together. And it's like we might look into the sky, and our first attention is drawn to the l- spots of light. And we construct the constellations out of them, and we start to see these images made out of points of light. But then if we just settle and soften our focus, we might also notice we might also notice the soft, inky blackness of the vast cosmos. (coughs) Without which we wouldn't see or register any of those points of light that are both, as we know, vast, boiling, burning, exploding balls of gas and in a few cases whole (laughs) constellations of billions of balls of gas that we call galaxies. we wouldn't see those points of particularity without the backdrop of the darkness, which we don't actually see, but we register as the absence of the light. We don't actually see an absence of light, but we register it as the absence of what we can see. So we can discern it. And we can see that as the clouds move in the sky on a clear day, that there are the movements of the clouds, and yet there is also the backdrop of the sky against which they move. And it's giving us some sense of something that is profound and particular in its instructiveness as a metaphor for what I think we're really interested to understand. And so to extend that metaphor, um, to extend that metaphor, I'm just letting go of something. You're just watching me doing some letting go. I made up a really nice picture to show you about the story that I told you, but I've gone too far past it. I'm not going to pick it up, but I made a really nice picture to show you, and I'll show you later. (laughs) (sighs) So, the image that I'd like to invite you to contemplate is what it's like, what happens if we go to the movies. You know what happens when you go to the movies? You go into a room, they turn out the lights, there's a white screen in front of you and they project colours onto it. And then they make these things that are wired up to the wall vibrate in the air, creating sounds. And you know what happens? We look at those colours and we go, colours, wow, look. Oh, there's some really nice colours over here. Oh, I like those colours. There's some, usually some other colours, we don't like them so much. They're, they're the bad colours. huh? And we see that the good the colours are trying to... Make sure that the bad colors don't take over, or the bad colors are trying to hurt the good colors, and we get kind of concerned about it. You notice how this happens? Yeah? And of course, there's colors moving on a white screen. At some point, of course, there's some really cute colors that turn up, and the, the good colors get together with the cute colors and overcome the bad colors <laughs> that are moving around. But you know sometimes when it doesn't look like it's going to work out that way, we just want to say to the good colors, "Look out, the bad colors are coming." You know, have you ever had that moment of concern? When these colours almost ate those colours or shot them or jumped on them or something? Now, you hear what I'm telling you because the sensory data is just a bunch of colours and there's a bunch of sounds that construct a world in there for us. Now, it's a very carefully constructed world because if the picture was projected halfway onto the walls so you saw the curtains and the walls, you'd go, no, 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 don't do that. Or if someone kept saying, hey, look at those colours, you'd say, shh, (laughs) shh. spoiling the story. <laughs> we don't want to know that there's a screen there. The colours are carefully projected to occupy the entire screen area. If you can just see even a little sliver of the screen, suddenly it doesn't feel as compelling. It's a bit like, oh, it's just a movie. Damn. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? you understand how that works? Does that make sense? You know, the interesting thing about a movie is that you cannot see the screen. You're only seeing the colours reflecting back on it. But the only reason they're reflecting back on it is because the screen is there. You cannot see the screen, but the fact that colours are coming into your eyes tells you it's there. You cannot see it. By definition, this thing doesn't work if you can see the screen. It's a little bit like that with what we're interested in here, something and nothing. Let's just take a couple of moments, and if you'd like to change your posture, or take a moment to stretch, let's do that, because I have a little bit more here, and I don't want you to feel under pressure. Just take a moment to breathe, don't go anywhere. Unless you have to. Are you alright if we take a few more minutes? Okay, good. Good. Feel free to do that moving, stretching, adjusting thing again if you need to. In my early years of practice, when I was in Asia, I attended a retreat in uh, Budga at the Thai Temple, which I think Catherine mentioned, um, was it last night or in the morning? I can't remember. Recently, not last night, but recently. In this this place of practice... uh, I'd been the year before and I was very happy to be back. And in fact, I believe I first met Akencino at that Not at that time, but a little bit later in that same place. when he was a monk and I think I was teaching a retreat there. Um, so it's a place that has a lot of uh, fond memories for me. But this particular memory is one of the, the precious ones. I was doing walking meditation on the grass as one did. Bare feet, warm grass. And the monasteries in Asia are something of a sanctuary for all beings, and you find people use them as a retirement plan sometimes, and all kinds of animals that are stray or sick end up there, so you get chickens and puppies and kittens and the occasional goat. Um... But one of the the creatures I loved perhaps the most there were the puppies. They were just so much full of fun and enthusiasm and exuberance. They'd be running about while you were doing walking, meditation. They'd just come and run to the foot that you were standing on to check if you were really holding your balance or if you were just looking good by walking slowly. Or if you put your food down, they'd come and help you finish it off because, you know, probably you needed that. And just the joy and the yelping when they sort of hurt themselves, but they're just so (coughs) exuberant. I just love them. They filled my heart with this very uplifted quality. And having been there the year before and had very much the same experience, I was suddenly struck, and in fact, I have to say, just completely impacted by the realisation that I thought that these puppies were the same ones I'd been with last year. And of course... It's obvious, isn't it? They're not the same puppies. Those puppies have grown up and moved on. Some of them. Some of them may not have survived. But I had this feeling that these were the same puppies. And something just struck me in that it was like, oh, the puppies keep changing. <laughs> obvious, sorry. That wasn't the punchline. <laughs> the puppies keep changing. But puppy nature is unchanging. <laughs> what's shining out of those little beings, what's expressing itself through those little forms, is exactly the same as what was here last year, but in a different shape. A different being, we could say. And that isn't something that we can take and say, oh, it's that, but it isn't nothing, because it's clearly there. And... uh I was very touched talking with our course manager, Roberta, earlier in the retreat, and she was speaking about her sense of just kind of coming to serve the retreat and the sense of meeting and the people she met and engaged with her on the retreat. And I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. I was very touched to hear her. And I felt the truth of it, a sense of just, in a way, seeing that something. We weren't talking about the puppies, but just seeing something, the light in the eyes, we could say, or the brightness in the heart we could say, or whatever it is that we might not even try to say. But there's a sense of that, being here, to be met, to be served. And that's what we're in the business of, it would seem to me. The serving, the meeting, but also the discovering and the fully penetrating and understanding of what this is. That's here, that's alive, that's human, but not just human. In so far as equally puppies are puppies. But not just puppies. Because there's something that shines through them, that shines equally through beings and equally through things that we don't call beings, but that nonetheless shine. In a way that isn't so much something we register with our eyes and their capacity for you know, um radiomagnetic um radiation. Is that what it is? Radio-magnetic? I think it is, isn't it? A certain spectrum that you can actually see, makes colours, that we call light. Um, anyway, Some of my scientific references are so out of date, I wonder if I've got them right still. But anyway, you know what light is. Or oh, actually, we don't really know what light is, do we? I haven't got a clue. But we know what I'm talking about when I say what light is, it's that stuff that we see colours with. Yeah. What is going on here is kind of remarkable because we have sensory equipment that's very particular. The sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, hearing facility that we're <laughs> embedded in, embodied in, engaged in, awakening in. However we want to say it, none of those words will be quite right. But this interface, that's another way of this interface. is wired up in a very particular way. Scientists, I think in the 50s or 60s, first started to investigate why it is that they notice a particular phenomenon, which you might be familiar with, which is that if you hear a sound and it's constant, like the hum of a fridge, or the gentle... mm, of a fan, if it's not a particularly irritating or annoying or pleasurable and enjoyable one, but kind of neutral, if it's just there constantly, after a while it disappears. And we don't even know we're listening to it until the fridge gets a little warmer and clicks on and goes again. And then it just disappears and we don't know it's there. It just disappears. And um, smells. You notice what smells are like? You come into a room, it's a bit stuffy in here, all these people, they've been breathing, they've been sweating. Then after you're here for a little while, smells fine. When we have a constant stimulus, unless it's strong or extreme... And we're grasping or reacting to it. If we're not reacting to it, a steady stimulus fades. We stop noticing it. A gentle pressure on a part of our body that doesn't feel sensitive or vulnerable. We still feel it. If it just stays there, I'm putting my finger on my knee just now. If I don't keep paying attention actively, it just fades out as if it's not there. But this has never been seen with visual consciousness. never been recorded or reported that I was just looking at it and then it just disappeared. And the scientists wondered, why is that so? All the other senses taste likewise. You know why it stops being so interesting to chew th- something ongoingly? It's because the taste registering capacity just flattens out and stops impinging on consciousness in the way that it did. It starts to become kind of all blah, sort of. huh? goes neutral, flat. But it doesn't happen when we're looking at things. So these scientists wired up some contact lenses to a projector and on the context, lens, there were different ways it is, but I think the the foot has a little—I've um, forgotten the name—but a little something, because what they noticed was that the eyes are constantly moving. So actually, the image on the retina, the sensory receptors in the back of your eyes, is constantly changing, constantly changing, constantly changing, constantly changing, because even when you look at a fixed thing, the image you're getting is keeps getting moved by your eyes shimmering as they do. And so they fixed a projector effectively so it was wired to something on a contact lens that was going to move the image at the same speed the eye moved. So basically they managed to create a fixed image on the retina of a simple image. And in the experiment what was reported, I don't know if it was 30 seconds or one or two minutes, image was there, image was there, image was there, poof, went blank. Visual consciousness turned off. Wow. 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 Our sensory equipment cannot register something unchanging. Hmm? This is not mystical hocus pocus. This is scientific stuff. Buddha was a remarkable scientist. Our sensory equipment sight, smell, taste, touch. Sight, smell, taste, touch. What's the other one? Feel. Yeah. Tactile. And. Sight. Okay, hearing, smell. We know what they are. (laughs) It's getting late, sorry. Um, And the cognitive mind that receives the sensory input of thinking, which we understand in the Dharma as being actually a sense door, similar to the others, that receives the thoughts that arise. None of those can actually register something that's unchanging. But the fact, that they are registering something at all, is suggesting something about what is nothing. So here we are, human beings, moving in a very particular trajectory that has its realness and its validity. And at the same time, there's a process in which as we learn, as we grow, as we unfold in a developmental way, we're equally being asked to open into what it is or where it is or how it is or actually just in the end fundamentally that it is that what is happening is here and now. This world of arising internality, externality, subjectivity, duality and yet it's not moving at all. just as the colours move on the screen. So life itself has its dimensionality of stillness. The stillness of the screen that doesn't move while the colours move upon it is hard to see because we can't see it because it doesn't move. But we can recognise that there's something here that's being known that could be sensed or recognised, not with the sensory equipment that we have, but with what happens when we allow them to become quiet, to become still, to be open to be sensitive, to allow the fullness of our humanity to attune to the wavelength, to the frequency, to the vibration of of what it is that's here, that isn't something, because there isn't something, other than sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touch and thoughts. There isn't something other than that, or anything we can make out of those things that's substantial. But it's not nothing either. It's not nothing either. That we are not ultimately moving through this, nor really it moving through us. Movement and stillness are both expressions of what is true. Movement and manifestation and the fullness of life. Stillness and the dropping away of all forms into emptiness. Emptiness. And ultimately this practice that we're engaged in here together is a coming home to where we already are, to what has always and never other been, never been otherwise than just this. Ryo Khan Zen monk, poet and hermit for whom I have a great love, He says, do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. Just this. So let's just have a moment or two quietly together. And let us not seek to follow the movements in pursuit of what they pursue but to become interested in where they move from, to become interested in what they dissolve back into. That is neither something nor nothing, not something to be grasped, nor yet nothing to be disregarded. And so may we all here in our practice together and in our lives, may we come to live the fullness of the particularity of our lives, our journeys, our stories and our hearts. And may we equally come to know in the fullness and depth of freedom the truth that is unchanging, the freedom that is unshakable the peace that is all-pervading, all-embracing, neither bound by nor apart from all that is. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, thank you again for your presence for your practice and for staying with that I think that might have been the longest I ever talked sitting on this particular seat I hope it was of service and support to all of our journeys and uh, it's now quarter to nine so uh, some time for walking or standing or sitting or just being as you are and we'll Perhaps have the sitting beginning at um, five after nine, so in 20 minutes, with the bell ringing at nine o'clock. It gives enough space for what needs to be done. Good. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org